The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Welcome to episode 150 of the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Hey, thank you so much for popping in for this truly wonderful episode with a truly delightful guest, Jim Metzner. Jim is a sound producer who uh, who created his own show, Pulse of the Planet, which is something you really got to check out. But today he's here to discuss his debut novel, a magical realism and historical fantasy book called Sacred Mounds from Adelaide Books. It's one of those books that I'm comfortable saying, get ready to be inspired by the mysteries of the Sacred Mounds, because there are so many incredible things going on uh, with these books and with his story. It's really something. But along the way, we're going to be talking about his incredible sound career and his wonderful talent, discovering the sounds all around you, the company of yourself, our similarities of having a supportive wife at home. (laughs) Uh, we talk about his show, The Pulse of the Planet, and how that uh, his sound work is now collected and saved in the National Archives. And I can tell you right now, along with his show, which I've been really fascinated by here lately, checking out several episodes, I can't wait to start investigating and checking out some of these mounds that are right here in Missouri, uh, based on his book. It's a really fascinating interview and a discussion that we have, and one that I can't wait to get us on over to. So stay tuned for that. It's coming up here in just a moment. So here we are, November 3rd here in America. Uh, I don't know. Is there anything? It's not a whole lot. Wait, there's something going on. What is that? Oh, oh yeah, that's right. That's right. It's NaNoWriMo. <laughs> How's your word count going? Now, in all seriousness, yes, I know. Today is election day here in America. And, uh, you know, it's a stressful time. But, you know, I, I, I got to just tell everybody relax. It's going to be fine. No matter which way things go at the end of the day, it's going to be fine. And as for me, I'm going to just focus on entertaining you with incredible guests and, you know, perhaps even some of my own writing, which is what I'm doing this month with NaNoWriMo. I am hard at work at it. I've been having a good couple of days and uh, so far so good. I'm really enjoying it. How's your writing going? So... (laughs) You know, and one of the nice things with NaNoWriMo is that they also have a tie-in with our sponsor, Scrivener, the Scrivener writing software. If you are a participant of NaNoWriMo, then you can uh, earn yourself 20% off of the program. And, of course, if you if you make it through November by writing a full 50,000-word novel and then you follow the steps necessary to be a winner of NaNoWriMo, then you will get 50% off your order of Scrivener. Now, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that, you know, if you're not a NaNoWriMo person, if you just, maybe you're just an author who doesn't want that pressure, but you're still interested in Scrivener, then by all means, use code CHAPTER, which is brought to you by Sample Chapter Podcast, and you will still save 20% off the regular desktop version. Hey, check out this advertisement for our sponsor, and uh, you're going to hear about that code one more time. Jason here. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool, Scrivener. Now, I know you've heard about Scrivener because their writing software has been embraced by hundreds of thousands of other writers like you and I, from the novice to best-selling novelists. The reason we all use it is because of Scrivener's core concept to bring all the writing tools you use together in a single application. And with tools like automatic backup, character maps, project goals, and let's not forget that amazing corkboard, you can see why I use Scrivener every day. As a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scrivener writing software, built by writers for writers. All right, I also want to thank Pop Goes a Culture Network. They are home to... They have about 10 shows over there, all of them pop culture related and uh, in nature. So talking about the uh, news of the day and uh, with the movies, TV, 
actors, actresses, you know, anything going on, whatever's happening here lately, it's all right there. And of course, their flagship show, Pop Goes a Culture Podcast, which airs live every Thursday evening before the episode comes out on Fridays. And uh, what's neat about the live show is that you can actually interact with them. So make sure you click that link in the show notes so you can find out how to interact with the gang on Thursday nights. I also want to thank Project Entertainment Network, home to 35 different podcasts, shows in far-ranging subjects that uh, you got to just check out to believe. (laughs) Uh, Hey, check out this advertisement for one of those great shows at the Project Entertainment Network. Hello, podcast addicts and curious listeners. Dr. Galvanic's Odd Tales is a narrated podcast with dark, thrilling and mysterious stories. In each episode, Dr. Galvanic's Odd Tales will take you through the mysteries of the Australian outback, lead you into a remote corner of the galaxy, or it will accompany you through a mind-bending nightmare. You can find Dr. Galvanic's Odd Tales on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Subscribe to the show so you won't miss another episode. See you out there. All right. Hey, I also want to invite you to follow... uh, our podcast friends and sponsors on social media. We're all over there on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever else you can find us for the show. We're just sample chapter podcast at those locations. It's a great place to find uh, the show where we're sharing episodes and little tidbits here and there, back background information, upcoming episodes and, and past episodes for that matter. If you're not a social media person, but you'd like to reach out to the show, you can do so through email at samplechapterpodcast at gmail.com or you can leave me a voicemail by calling 660-851-1146. Hey, without further ado, let's go ahead and get us on over to our interview today with our guest Jim Metzner and his lovely and riveting reading of Sacred Mounds. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the Sample Chapter Podcast. This week, we are going to be welcoming a a new friend to the show with his debut fiction novel, Jim Metzner. Since 1985, Jim Metzner Productions have been creating compelling and memorable content for a wide range of diverse clients. He's best known as the producer and narrator of radio series and podcasts, including Pulse of the Planet, currently broadcast on 250 public and commercial stations to an audience of over a million listeners every week. Jim, welcome to the show. Well, I'm very glad to be here, Jason. Very happy to be with you on, on your show. Oh, great, great. I'm, I'm really happy to have you here, and I cannot wait to, to dive into this uh, debut novel. It sounds amazing. Uh, how are you doing, and, uh, and uh, are you staying healthy? Well, those are all questions we, we seem to ask each other. It's, it's now when you see somebody say, hi, how are you doing? It seems to have a deeper meaning, doesn't it? Exactly. Uh, we'll, we'll take it a little bit more seriously. Uh, well, we're taking the, my wife and I take the um, role of being sequestered seniors seriously up here in the foothills of the Catskills where it's relatively easy to be sequestered. Um, being a senior, of course, is a whole, <laughs> a whole other matter as I slouch my way into seniorhood. Uh, but uh, we're okay. Uh, the short answer is um, New York State is doing pretty well. We're learning, like everybody else, how to cope with something that w- we never would have considered even conceivable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's been a remarkable year, to say the least, to to think what our dreams and aspirations were going into 2020, and now uh, we just want to survive. Yeah, and also, you know, it's a, how many people have you heard saying, well, it's putting on a social pause button, which it is, and it is a time for reflection and introspection in many ways, and if anything, it's a time to see... Uh, cope with being with myself, seeing how much I need and want to be with a company of others, but getting more used to being with a company of myself. I, you know, that's, that's a very good point because it's one of the things I've noticed uh, with my family as well is we've always been pretty close, but we, we've been able to spend more time together uh, of late, especially our younger, um, our teenage children that are still living with us. Uh, they've been 
more willing to do things with us, and that's been nice. But uh, yeah, to uh, to have uh, more time to ourselves and reflect and kind of identify what's important to like to myself and uh, kind of focus on some of those things uh, and uh, our personal needs has been has been a, a unique opportunity. Indeed, my fa- uh, my wife and I live here, uh, share a house together, and my favorite line, which is. It's worn a little thin, but I say to her every day, you know, darling, there's no one else on the earth I'd rather sp- spend a pandemic with than you. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's nice. My, my wife, I, I would have to agree, uh, but uh, she did. We, we ventured out last night for dinner and she made sure to point to the senior menu portion of, <laughs> of our menu that uh, they, they lowered it to 55 and she's tapping on the the 55 and looking at me going six more years. <laughs> I was like, thank you, dear. I, I know. <laughs> uh, well, I've, I've passed, you know, it's when you get your ARP card that you know you're official, but yeah, I've, I'm, I've passed the threshold. I, I'm <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, so tell us about uh, Jim Metzner productions, the, uh, the sound solutions that you have. Well, very briefly, um, you know, if you would have told me when I was in high school that I would end up spending my life recording sound and being a radio producer, I would have said, <laughs> are you talking to me? Uh, but it just turned out after having had a career as both a, an actor and a singer-songwriter, I was serious in both of them and had a, uh, the beginnings of careers in both. Because of various and sundry reasons, I decided to change the color of my parachute. Is that the metaphor? And went back to school to study what interested me, which was ethnomusicology. And through that, I fell in love with sound recording. I mean, I, why isn't everybody going around recording the sounds of everyday life with a tape recorder was the question I came to. It's so cool. It was like, you know, when you get a camera, sometimes you sort of rediscover seeing, you know mm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, having a, a tape recorder, recording the sounds, you know, putting headphones on, using a stereo microphone, it was like a revelation. And that act uh, and the continual exploration that, and realization that we live in a, this wonderful world of sound, you know, we're surrounded by sound, whether it's the ticking of a clock in a room that I'm in or the, or the sounds <laughs> of birds outside the window or whatever. It's, we live, we're bathed in sound. And so I started just recording stuff and I put out, you know, Jim Metzner Productions. Uh, I just started working and seeing what would come of it. And I, I worked in every possible medium you could think of in sound. I was a soundman on documentary film. I worked with choreographers doing sound for them. I um, didn't occur to me to, to uh, oh, uh, the other thing I should say, very important, I put together a portfolio of photography and sound called Sound Image. It's early multimedia and uh, worked with brilliant photographers, famous photographers, collecting their photographs with sounds that I had found. Went to Brazil to record some sounds there and made an album of that that became very well known. Uh, it's called Bahia, Traditional Music and Moments of Brazil. It's out there in the world. And uh, then I decided to, my hand at radio, I put together a sample program, took it to a local radio station. I was living in Boston at the time. And to make a long story short, I sold them the show. And that's what kicked it off. It was called You're Hearing Boston. And I kind of cut my teeth learning the craft back in the 70s in Boston, then went to San Francisco, did your hearing San Francisco, which segued to your hearing America, when I um, had a sponsor. Um, And then um, that segued to a show called Sounds of Science, and then Pulse of the Planet, um, which had many different underwriters along the way. And that's been on the air, believe it or not, Jason, for 30 Aught years now. Wow. It's a lot of programs. And the, the capstone to Jim Metzner's career was that the Library of Congress um, recently acquired my archive of 40 years. So all my stuff now is in the Library of Congress. That's amazing. Outstanding. Way to go, Jim. Thank you. <laughs> I you know, and it's I'm I'm never 
I'm always amazed and thrilled to hear about somebody who found a new passion, started to follow that, and then have, uh, through hard work and and, uh, never giving up, have built something uh, the way you have. This is a fantastic story. Well, thanks. Uh, It's, you know, I never wanted to or thought of myself as a pioneer. I was just sort of following something that was extraordinarily interesting to me. And I'll just say one other story, which I just learned about just this um, past month, which goes back thirty uh, something years when I, to when I went to Brazil. I was in my twenties or whatever. Oh gosh, I, that's more than thirty years ago, isn't it? Uh, so um, fifty years ago. <laughs> oh God, ah, numbers. The odometer keeps ticking. Well, the um, I, I was just somebody who was out there recording really interesting stuff. And I've just learned that some of the recordings I did, it's on this Bahia CD that I was telling you about, I started hearing from uh, people who were involved in capoeira, which is a Brazilian form of martial art that also has uh, music associated with it. Capoeiristas started contacting me from one from Australia, the other from Brazil. I have no idea why or how they got hold of my album, but they did. And they were saying, hey, you know this recording you did of, of Cobrinha Vergi, who is this uh, fa- famous uh, capoeira master? Well, it's the first recording that we know of, of not only his music, but the first recording of that anybody, Brazilian or American or anybody, had ever made of this particular kind of music, samba da viola, which is a form of samba da roda. I had no idea that was the first guy doing that. I was just doing it. But now, you know, after 50 years to, to learn that it was like the first of its kind and people are sort of really scholars are contacting me and they're excited about it. I mean, that was pretty cool. That is very cool. Wow. Oh my gosh, man. Well, so now what, uh, what can we expect uh, with the, the future of, uh, of your productions? Well, good question. Pulse of the Planet is still on the air. It's a two-minute show. It, it's the, the idea, the Pulse of the Planet is a pretty good title. It was created to be a, a kind of antidote for the news, which is the tsunami of the planet. You know, it's, mm-hmm. if it, you know the old saying, if it bleeds, it leads. I don't have to, you know, do you really want to talk about the news of the day? Uh, <laughs> perhaps we're all, we're all addicted to it because it's so crazy. But I figured even, you know, 30 years ago, when the news was kind of in a way, maybe not the caliber of uh, incredulity that I feel now every time I listen to the news, but I needed an antidote, an idea, or I felt the world perhaps needed an antidote that beneath the tsunami, there's another pulse. There's another wave, a life affirming wave of the rhythms of life. So today, not only are you know the Azerbaijanis about to you know fight the 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 um, Armenians, uh, but also you know guess what? Uh, bowhead whales are migrating now, and they've been doing this for thousands of and or, or something like that. Something that that talks about life on Earth um, and some of the challenges that we're facing, but it's positive. It's sort of like you know it's not fluff. It's real news, but it's something of a another pulse. That, that tells of, of, of the story of life on earth, I hope in a, in a life-affirming way. Oh my goodness. That sounds, sounds incredible. I, everybody's gonna have to make sure and click that link in the show notes to check this out. And I mean, considering podcasts, even my own podcast is averaging 45 minutes. So two minutes is nothing. That, that's just a moment and leaves you wanting more, which is great. Hopefully it's, it's weird, you know, two minutes I found, I, I dream in two minute segments, having done thousands of programs now, two minutes, if it's uninteresting can seem like an eternity, but if it's compelling, two minutes goes by like that. <laughs> That's fantastic. Absolutely. Well, now at, at what point did writing uh, become, you know, fall into your, your realm? Uh, I see you, you did some nonfiction. Yes. Well, I created, um, uh, after Sound Image, I created a Pulse of the Planet Extraordinary Sounds from the Natural World CD book for the Nature Company that is now out of print. It became a CD. Um, but I've always been a writer, um, not just commercially. I, I mean, when I was in school, 
I wrote uh, short stories and poetry. I, I was a singer songwriter. I wrote my own song. So, uh, and of course, writing radio programs, it's the writing isn't the strong suit of the show, but it's important creating a context. So I've been a writer for many years, but I'd say 20, 30 years ago, yeah, somewhere between 20 and 30 years ago, I had the idea um, of creating a story that was inspired by the mounds that proliferate throughout the United States, these ancient earthworks, of which there are some, I should do my homework, in, in Missouri. In fact, I could probably mm -hmm. look over right now. Yeah. I believe you have some in Missouri. I, I, I believe you're right. Um, in any case, um, they seem to me to be like a living uh, metaphor. Uh, hang on, I'm, I'm multitasking. Missouri mounds and earthwork <laughs> sites. My gosh, you got them all over the place. Um, they're in, um, I'm just going to give you a couple of names. There's 11 Point River Mounds in Missouri and Hess Archaeological Site in Missouri and the Kings II Archaeological Site. So they're not only all over, I mean, you've got dozens of them. Well, tens, well, it's thought that thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of mounds were throughout the United States, particularly the South, Southeast, and, and the North, Northeast. Um, but throughout the United States, we know some of them were burial mounds. We uh, believe that some of them were ceremonial mounds, the flat top mounds. But in the end, there's a lot more that we don't know about them that we do, than we do know. And it's thought that, at least to me, that they were places of the, perhaps the earliest places in the United States uh, of, um, of a kind of spiritual practice. So I thought, whoa. Here's something that's buried, it's unknown, it's spiritual in nature. So buried, unknown, spiritual in nature. What a metaphor for, uh, there's a story there. So that was all I had to go on. I didn't know much about the mounds than that. I'd heard some of them were famous, like the Serpent Mound in Ohio. And I started to research them. And in researching them, I found that there was a tribe called the, uh, the Natchez. Actually, they pronounce it Nachi. So the Nachi were the last known tribe to, uh, that we know of, uh, Western society knows of, non-Native American society knows of, um, who were inhabiting the mounds. And we know that because um, uh, expeditions like the DeSoto expedition um, noticed uh, the Nachi and that were living near and, and, and doing ceremonies in the mounds. And the priests, made copious notes and did drawings. Uh, if you, I think I sent you a, a trailer, uh, our book trailer. You look at the book trailer, those are some of the drawings that these, these priests, the Jesuit priests drew. And through that, because there, is no, there was no written language from the Native Americans at the time, uh, we know a lot from the Jesuits filtered through their uh, cultural biases. Um, but that was a, a great fount of information. So from that and from my research um, uh, about what's happening contemporaneously, I learned that the Nachi tribe had almost been wiped out by the French, that, that those who were left were then dispersed along the famous Trail of Tears uh, from around Natchez, Mississippi, up to Oklahoma and North Carolina. And they returned... To, the, uh, to their um, sacred site in Natchez every year, the powwow. So I went down there and I met the tribal chief and we became friends. Short, long story short, sorry to go on so long. He wrote that the chief, the tribal chief, whose name is Hutki Fields, he wrote the foreword to my book. Wow. I, yeah, I saw that. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was a great honor. We became friends. I was just speaking to him yesterday. And uh, anyway, I learned a lot from him, from being there, from participating in their ceremonies. And then gradually over the years, this book came into being. That is a lot. It's historical fantasy because there's stuff that like time travel that happens that at least if, if that exists, the Nazi aren't copying to it exactly yet <laughs> <laughs> to the rest of it. But there's a lot of stuff in the book that's really thick, uh, historically accurate. And it's extraordinary 
um, it's true. I mean, no truth is stranger than fiction often. Uh, we're living in a moment in time like that ourselves. Um, it's, um, but there, it has moments of fantasy as well. Um, so that's, that's a, a, in, in brief, um, the shape of the book and how it came to be. It sounds to me like what happened to you is a very, a very common thing that I've heard a lot of times, and has even happened to me at times, where you come across something that just is so astounding, it just got your imagination flowing, and next thing you know, you've got a story that you've got to tell. Yeah, it's a little bit like that, and, 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 and a story that you feel is worth telling, because what I found buried in the mounds and what the book addresses is a question I hope that we all face or ultimately face, which is, well, for starters, why are we here? Why are we alive? And what relationship do we have to the earth that we inhabit? Not just that we have to recycle our food and, you know, <laughs> all that kind of stuff <laughs> and to not pollute. Yes, of course, I, I'm going to take that as, as a given and any sane person has, has realized that now uh, and, and, and not to affect uh, the world with, uh, you know, emissions of gas. I'm not talking about that. Is there something else that relates to our own uh, reason for being that the earth needs from us? It's, it's, it's an odd question in a way. What does the world need from us. And I was just reading a wonderful uh, book, I, which I recommend to everyone. It's The Overstory. Um, I won the Pulitzer Prize last, last year. And um, what an extraordinary book. But he asks that question in the book, right in the middle. It's, you know, it's like uh, uh, the book is all about trees in many ways. And he asks, well, what does the world want from us? And um, I think it's a great question. In fact, I wrote to him and heard back from him. We've been in conversation about this question. I think it's a great question. And, and that's in my small way. That's what my book, I hope, is, is trying to at least explore. Oh, my goodness. That's fantastic. And I mean, speaking from experience, I, I've done a little bit of research in the mounds. And uh, I have seen some documentaries on mm -hmm. some of them. They are most certainly an amazing and a very mystical phenomenon uh, or, or location wherever you can uh, find one. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to go to one now in Missouri and, and check it out. But I, I did a little bit of research during my first book, uh, looking up some Indian burial grounds. And, uh, you know, of course, you get down that rabbit hole where you're learning all kinds of stuff. And then, mm. you know, a couple of days later, you got to like pull yourself back. I'm like, oh, wait, no, okay, I'm way off now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, the the thing with the mounds that amaze me is it's it's not literally just a mound of dirt that they tunneled into. There is a lot of interesting architecture that goes into that are very purposeful. And yeah. I know I know in some places uh, they have specific, I believe it's like air holes or something for light that come in at certain times of the year yeah. for certain reasons that we're not exactly sure why, but they do line up with like the solstice and other things and it's just remarkable it's really amazing yes that's true and uh there have been books that have been written i have some of them that say that the mounds were built uh, aligned uh like stonehenge like uh, many say the pyramids were not casually mm. located that they were aligned um to uh, for solar and star uh purposes um they, uh, there's also evidence that they were acoustic properties. Uh, some of those tunnels that you mentioned have specific acoustic properties. But above and beyond all of that, which is all good and, and, and compelling and valid, lies the question of, well, what about us? What, 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 what role did they play in the lives of human beings? What about those ceremonies? Mm. What were the mounds meant uh, to remind us of? Yeah. No, that's, that's a very valid question. So what, what was the, uh, the writing process like for you? Like how, how long did it take you? And uh, did you have any struggles throughout? Oh, God. In my book, uh, maybe this comes out as a way of perhaps answering your question. I mean, basically in writing the book, I struggled the way you did, the way we all do. You know, you start something and then you stop. And when I said I started the book 30 years ago, I'm, I wasn't kidding. Um, but I put it down and I didn't write for, for years at a time. And finally, closer to now, I don't know, maybe five, 10 years ago, I decided, you know what, 
I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to write this book and I'm going to write every day, rain or shine, richer for poorer, sickness and in health, you know, take it as like a, like a marriage commitment and finish this book, put it out into the world, whatever it takes. I looked at what I'd written, threw it all out. (laughs) It started again. And, uh, and that's what, you know, the writing process was, but I wrote every day and, and that I was able to finish it. And then of course, many drafts later, but along, so in this story um, that is resonant with what you were just speaking about in your book, uh, let, well, let me just say that it takes place in two time periods, our time period and in the past. And what happens very simply is someone from our time period, actually a guy who sort of looks a lot like me, um, falls asleep in a mound and finds himself in the body of a blind Native American in the 1600s. Now, he doesn't know that right away. He's just kind of freaked, freaked out. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know where he is or how he got there or anything like that. At the same time, the person in whose body he finds himself in is transported into our hero's uh, body in our time. And he knows why he is here. So we're talking about people who are switching bodies through time. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So, all right. So if you're in the past, one, uh, as he's, as he, um, the, the person whose body he's inhabiting is named Sky Fisher. And the guy in the present is uh, someone uh, named Salvador Samuels. Well, talking about uh, that was resonant in your book, in the past, uh, when Sky Fisher um, was young, there was a mound that was a sacred mound, a very special place, but it was off limits, exactly the way that you were describing in your book. It was a place that you know you were told not to go to, except if you were like one of the initiatives. It was off limits. And I think there might have even mm-hmm. been like poles, the skulls up on it, anything they could do to pe- keep people away. Mm-hmm. And the legend was that people, uh, that any of the young bucks, who of course, like the kids in high school you were describing, uh, would always, you know, as soon as you say, don't go there, there's always going to be some guys who say, well, I'm going to go there. And they, <laughs> and they came back always, you know, telling stories and, and shaken and really saying, oh, I'm not going there again. And so Sky Fisher becomes one of those people who is brave enough to go. And what happens to him is that he's transported to, um, uh, to our time. Anyway, then the book tells the, the stories of these two men uh, one of whom, the guy from our time, hasn't a clue as to why he's back in the past. And the other guy who's now in our time knows very well why he's here. He's on a mission. It sounds incredible. And it's I, uh, it's one of those where just the premise alone is enough to draw you in, uh, to, to hear what's what's happening and what's going on. And then the uh, the consequences of such is is really incredible. Cool. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> so we don't have to read the book now. Okay. See you later. <laughs> well, well, what's uh, what comes next for you? Do you have uh, do you have more tales to tell? Ah, good question. Uh, I don't really know, Jason. I'm I'm torn because the book, when you re- I hope you do read it and uh, through, and uh, others too. It begs the sequel. And, and before COVID hit, uh, it reached the attention of people who were involved in movie production. And they said, and I was contacted and people said, Jesus, this should be, a, uh, we want this to be like a Netflix series. And then, um, and I said, yeah, sure, let's, let's do it. And, and, and I want Wes Studi to be the, the bad Indian guy because he, <laughs> he's like my favorite uh, First Nation actor. He rocks, uh, Wes does. Anyway, um, the uh, then COVID hit, and uh, you know I don't know if anybody's making movies any, who, who, anymore, so it's all on hold. So one possibility is yes, uh, a sequel to this because it begs a sequel. Another possibility, my wife is convincing me that I should write a memoir about sound and listening, which may or may not happen. I I, I think that's a possibility, nonfiction. <laughs> okay and then you know maybe a third book that's a that i haven't you know figured out yet but something a little closer to home well hopefully 
whenever these come out, it, whatever, whichever way you go, hopefully you let me know so that I can make sure and totally. share that with the audience and, and let them know. And, I, and and it certainly sounds like your book is is uh, ripe for a movie, especially when you have uh, people supporting you like uh, Ken Burns and Orson Scott Card giving you such props for your book. I mean, that, that speaks volumes for the, uh, what's gone into it and uh, what they think of your book. Thank you. Uh, I also should say the next step here, I started, you know, maybe it could lead to a movie, but I, st- I wrote, um, I took the first chapter and started to storyboard it uh, and searched, I have been searching for a First Nation um, illustrator uh, to make a graphic novel of this. And I found oh. someone uh, who um, I pro- he hasn't committed to it yet, so I probably shouldn't mention his name, but uh, he's interested. He's a First Nation, a wonderful First Nation illustrator. Uh, he's Ch- uh, Chickasaw, uh, who are in lo- uh, many ways very close to the Nachi. And so I'm hoping he um, he says yes. And if he does, then we'll start to work together on a um, on a, a graphic novel, which who knows could lead ultimately to a film. That would be great. Oh my gosh, that sounds incredible. Thank you. Well, uh, Jim, this has been really, really uh, wonderful getting to talk to you and, and hear about your rich history and uh, this book, which which also sounds incredible. And I I certainly will be picking up a copy for myself and uh, I will be leaving a review once I'm done with it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find and follow you? Oh, cool. Thank you. Uh, well, the, as far as the book is concerned, I'll, I'll give you um, a couple of options. Uh, sacredmoundsnovel.com is a good place to sort of, you know, hear more examples from the book. You can find out where to order it. It's available both in print and audio. I did actually narrate the um, the audio version, which is now out on both in CD and in um, uh, as a as a download, and and that's a whole you know narrating a book is a whole other story into itself. Boy, that was a challenge. <laughs> uh god uh have you done it it's really uh quite quite challenging to do i haven't done it i've considered it uh having doing done the show now for two and a half years but Mm. yeah now that i've done it for two and a half years i realize the work that's going to go into it and i don't know that i'm going to do that (laughs) well for what it's worth you have a great voice and i think you should do it just because i think you're a natural but um, (laughs) it's uh anyway i learned a lot uh thank you jim The, the check's in the mail buddy (laughs) (laughs) okay well anyway so you can go to that website to uh sacredmoundsnovel.com don't forget the word novel because there's a rock group of course duh there's a rock group called sacred mounds so if you go to sacredmounds.com you'll get the rock group (laughs) i wish them well but uh if you go to Sacred Mounds Novel, you'll you'll come to my website. And if you want to know more about me and my stuff, I'm on Facebook. And there's another website, JimMetzlerProductions.com, of course, where you can hear some of the sounds, hear some of that stuff from Brazil I was talking about and some of the other things I've recorded over the years. Wonderful. We'll make sure to have links for all of this in the show notes so everybody can just click right there and uh we'll make sure that you get to the correct sacred mounds not the music group i'm sure they're i'm sure they're great but we want to get you to the book so <laughs> we'll have the links there the show notes everybody click those and uh find out more and follow everything that uh, jim metzner is up to again jim thank you so much for coming on I, i've had a really great time and uh, i can't wait to hear this Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, time for me to sit back and relax, as I hope you are doing, and we're going to listen to our guest today, Jim Metzner, with his debut magical realism and historical fantasy novel, Sacred Mounds. Well, thank you. I'm reading from chapter two, uh, which has the advantage of not needing any backstory. Built by the Civilian Conservation Corps during the Depression, the Natchez Trace runs from Nashville to Natchez following an ancient path walked by Native Americans and the likes of Daniel Boone. A true blue highway, it was a rite of passage for anyone perfectly content to stay in the perpetual slow lane for a long stretch where not much happened of any consequence. There's no billboards, there's no Denny's, First Baptist churches, 
popcorn palaces, mystery houses, bingo games, or giant balls of string. There's no trace of distraction, just a plethora of pine trees and a maximum speed of 50 miles an hour. You could be reasonably certain that no truck was going to attempt to have a meaningful relationship with your tailpipe, but you had to come to terms with the concept that the journey was the thing. Well, Lewis, and just an aside here, Lewis is our, our hero here. Lewis, recently divorced and needing to mend, was heading south in the springtime, thumbing his nose at the patterns of migrating birds and his forebears. He was, if not happy to be here, at least satisfied with the knowledge that he wouldn't have to deal with attorneys, accountants, cell phone calls, anyone who, who wanted something from him. He wasn't sure what he wanted from himself. Maybe a little time to recharge. The South knew how to relax. And below the Mason-Dixon, politeness was a way of life bordering on spiritual practice. At least that was his fantasy at any rate. And it had fueled this journey. He could always head back to New York when he felt the need to be insulted. This was Mississippi where people sipped mint juleps on porches and smelled the roses. Well, one of the rare signs on the trace indicated a mound site was nearby, igniting a memory of a postcard bought in an antique shop which showed a colorized aerial photograph of the Serpent Mound in Ohio. From on high, it resembled a huge, curving snake with a coiled tail and the serpent either had a large oval head or else its open jaws were about to consume an oversized egg you can imagine it either way and lewis had treated the card as an oddity akin to pictures of fur-bearing trout and antlered rabbits except the mound was real begging the question of whether the first settlers knew it was a serpent without the benefit of a polar view. Like the blind men with the elephant, why had the Indians, or whoever had made it, constructed something that could only be fully appreciated by birds in flight? And here, an aside, there's a picture in the book of the serpent mound seen from above, and it does look exactly like it was described as a serpent maybe eating an egg. Okay, back to the story. He had kept the card, the postcard, as a bookmark reserved for such tomes as In Search of the Miraculous and A Separate Reality, relegating mounds to phenomena which are tangible yet inexplicable, like the Sphinx, the game of cricket, and women. The mounds would have stayed in his inner bin of ephemera had he not decided on impulse to check them out a cleansing of the visual palette after miles of pine trees. He pulled off the trace at an ancient mound seven mile sign. The road turned from McAdam to dirt and after what seemed like 15 miles, Lewis saw it in the distance, a gentle hill breast. And as he anthropomorphized the earth, Lewis wondered whether the planet had earthopomorphized him. Hadn't mankind been fashioned from clay, begetting countless sons and daughters who'd forgotten that we were all related? The ones who sent Mother Nature birthday cards every Earth Day, the ones who periodically rallied to save the planet that we'd screwed up so royally? Lewis doubted the planet really needed saving. The species, which had turned Eden into a convenience store, had doomed itself. We'd met the enemy, and it was us. A rusted metal sign confessed that archaeologists didn't know who had constructed the mound or why. It might be a burial site. Lewis regarded the knoll with a critical eye. It was about the size of a couple of school buses, end to end. No evidence of it being man-made, just a low hummock with a nearly flat top covered with brush and trees. A lump, uh, a lymph node, a, an earthen birthmark, an insect without head or legs, the beetle mound. There were no obvious pathways. 
climbing it slowly, looking for fossils, arrowheads, shards of pottery. He picked up a blue blackjack gum wrapper, an artifact of sorts. Perhaps this was a burial mound, a, a communal cemetery with no headstones. Lewis's grandfather had famously mailed the Greenpoint Lodge a burial plot fee every month of his long tenure as a senior citizen, single-handedly paying for the plots of half the Jews from Odessa. At the age of 94, he died on a weekend when the lodge was closed. The cultural imperative to get him underground as quickly as possible forced the family to purchase another gravesite. Maybe a mass interment in a mound wasn't such a bad idea. He surveyed the surroundings from the summit, roughly 20 feet from the ground. The parking lot was empty, except for his car, a hand-me-down orange Chevy Nova, which so far had lived up to its name, Nova in Spanish. The transmission had imploded and the engine was acting like it was next in line. He descended to it, removed his tent and sleeping bag, calculating how far a credit card and cash on hand might carry him, the gold being California and this being Mississippi. Well, he figured he'd save a little money and camp out on the mound for the night. As good a place as any to set up a tent. He hated most campgrounds. Inevitably, some moron with a boombox would show up, inflicting his playlist on the world at large. No facilities here, but there was bound to be a diner nearby where he could wash up in the morning. Time enough to pitch a tent before nightfall. He locked the car, carried his gear, working his way up the mound through the scrub and fallen branches, stopping once to turn over a large limb in the latter stages of decay, looking for salamanders, way past their season. But he performed the act out of habit, an offering to the memory of his father. The old man had never thrown a football, baseball, basketball, or anything else at him, except for a plate of pot roast that had been aimed at his brother. Sports wasn't his father's thing. A card-carrying biologist, he went on nature walks, and Lewis had tagged or was dragged along on these forays into the world of science, where finding critters under logs was an unspoken ritual, something magical about rolling over a log and discovering a spotted salamander. No such luck today, just a reminder of the old man at his best. If only he could forget the rest. Lewis reached the top and found a relatively clear patch of ground. His tent had a curved elliptical shape supported by aluminum poles gently bent like ribs. It seemed somewhat in tune with the geometry of the mound, a, a green cocoon waiting for his larval form to enter. And so he did, removing his shoes and bringing in a sleeping bag. He zipped up the screen to keep out any bugs, leaving a fly flap open for fresh air. His jacket became a pillow and he lay on the tent floor, listening, a few crickets and a distant bird call. Lewis closed his eyes, trying to forget what a crummy sleeper he was. He'd read books on insomnia, listened to tapes, even gone to a clinic. They all more or less preached the same practice to no avail. The prospect of another sleepless night was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Bottom line, he was afraid to let go. Whenever that sinking feeling appeared, he invariably struggled against it, refusing to go under, coming up for air, for, for wakefulness, for life. Tonight, sleep came in through a side door. Memories of his father yelling at him for leaving a handprint on the living room wall, a handprint with an eye that sparkled in its center and beckoned him outdoors. He ran out of the house, late for school, unable to find his locker, wandering lost through corridors, down an escalator into a, a bus station, crowds of people going purposely somewhere. He, he couldn't catch a bus, no ticket, no shoes. The urban landscape dissolving into what it once had been, a wilder place, an odor of something dank and moldy. Odd, 
to smell something, anything in a dream. Time to bail, except he could not ascend. A rumble of panic, scrabbling for air. The only way out seemed to be to go deeper into the dream where everything had grown darker. Well, scared now, Lewis walked faster, barefoot on an earthen pathway. He could see nothing, but since he had entered a cavernous space, cool and damp, holding the panic down, breathing heavily, he slowed his pace as the path sloped upward. A sliding, scraping sound close behind him, a shallow breathing, perhaps a hiss. He ran, feeling the path in the dark by some kind of dream instinct. He, it curved to the right and became steeper until he collided into a post with cross pieces, a ladder. Lewis grabbed a rung and began to climb, splintering his finger, missing a foothold and nearly falling off. He reached the last rung, pulling himself through a narrow opening of what seemed to be an earthen roof scrambling out dirty shaking with fear whatever had been behind him had apparently not climbed in pursuit he felt the warmth of the sun on him but it was dark dark as night all right man that was incredible and that was jim metzner reading a sample chapter from his debut magical realism and historical fantasy book, Sacred Mounds. As we talked about, the book has been blurred by people like Ken Burns and Orson Scott Card. It's incredible, and I'm going to be checking it out for myself. Make sure you click that link in the show notes for more about Jim and his books, his show. Don't forget to also click the links for our sponsors and podcast friends alike. And hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out next week when we're back with Christina M. Etter. And her, <laughs> her hilarious book, Life's Too Short for Dull Razors, Cheap Pins, and Worn Out Underwear. <laughs> Take care, everybody, and make sure that you, you say hi to a neighbor today. Bye-bye. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.